Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Well, Revelation chapter number 16. Revelation 16 this morning, we are going to look at the seven bowls of wrath, the bowl judgment. Uh, this is yet again one of those passages of scripture that isn't, isn't one that you hear preached on a lot. Uh, it's not something that people generally find encouraging, although there's certainly encouragement in the text. It's just a tougher passage, but we want to read it. We want to understand it. We want to learn from it. So Revelation chapter 15 or 16, excuse me, I'm going to start in chapter 15, verse one. I want to read one verse and then we'll get over to 16. So chapter 15, verse one told us that John saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous was this sign. It, it put his jaw on the floor. Seven angels having the seven last plagues for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Then in chapter 16, verse number one, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, these same seven who had the seven plagues filled up with the wrath of God, these ones. And the, the voice said, go your ways, pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Then if you go down to verse number 17 of chapter 16, it says this, the seventh angel pours out this, this vial and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. Now we have seen through the course of Revelation, plague after plague, judgment after judgment. It's been one after the other after the other, honestly. We had the start of the letters to the churches that was, that was nice and there was a lot to learn. Then there were a couple chapters of worship in heaven, but by the time you get to the end of chapter five, you are in the judgment zone. And that goes all the way to the end of this chapter. And we've seen the seals open and there was seal after seal after seal and judgment after judgment after judgment. Then we saw the trumpets, they were blown and trumpet after trumpet after trumpet and judgment after judgment after judgment. And here you have this another series of judgments that comes upon us. But it's important to note that at the end of this one, you finally get these words, it is done. That this rightful and justified suffering of humanity on this earth is now coming to an end. And I want you to see these seven bowls of wrath, they've been called, that are poured out what they are and what they mean. So let's start in verse number two with contagious sores. It says in verse two, the first went, the first angel, he pours out his vial on the earth and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshiped his image. So this is very reminiscent of the sixth plague in Egypt. If you remember that plague that came upon uh, the land of Egypt, it was these, these boils and these sores. And this tells you that there is a particular target audience here. That it's not just everybody gets these, but there's a target audience of those who received the mark of the beast, those that received his image. And if you remember, this shouldn't surprise us. God called a shot on this one. He was eight ball corner pocket like the whole way. Because in chapter 14, verse number nine, God warned, if you take the mark of the beast, you will drink of the wine of my wrath and that wine will be undiluted. Like this is going to come. So now it's coming. 
those that have received the mark and have unified themselves with those who are completely opposed to God, now get this judgment, the first of the bulls of wrath, this, this pain and these sores. Verse number three, you see contaminated seas. The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea and it became as the blood of a dead man and every living soul died in the sea. So this contamination that kills the life forms and it tells you is as the blood of man. Now, could this be that this turns to actual blood? It's not beyond God's power. Uh, could it be perhaps that it's so contaminated that all the life dies in the sea and with that comes the rot and the decay and the blood and now it looks like it's being turned to blood? Maybe. I'm prone to think, and this is speculation, I will completely admit, but I'm prone to think that this is something like red tide. I don't know if you're familiar with red tide, but every once in a while, a body of water will have something happen to it where it appears as though it turns the blood, becomes very contaminated, it will kill the life in the water. And we don't really know exactly why this happens. We know there's some sort of microorganism that multiplies very rapidly to make this happen, but it does. It happened actually pretty recently in a river in northern, uh, northern Russia. There's this river called the Dalvakan River. And seemingly overnight, it went from a normal river to a river of blood. Uh, those that were there would say that you can just smell the, the rot from everything that is coming, that's dying in here. They say that if you get close enough, not even in it, but close enough, your eyes begin to burn from this. And this is actually a pretty long river. You can see an aerial shot of, of how long this goes. And there's this river of blood, you could say. Now, is it that? Is it something else? I, I don't know for sure, but we know this much that this is the plague that is coming. This is the bowl of wrath on the sea. Then it tells you in verse number four, it's not just the sea, but it's also the fresh waters. Get this. And there's corrupted streams. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of the waters, and they became blood. So salt water is getting it. Fresh water is getting it. As you can imagine, the panic that would unfold, as you can imagine how that would affect life when what you rely on, one of the staples that you need to survive and survive well, suddenly is so disrupted that it's unusable, that this would be devastating. This would be terrible. This would be terrifying. But then you get this little section and Revelation beats this drum over and over and we get it one more time. And I'm glad God gives us this reminder one more time because as you move through these, you can start to have your perspective jaded a bit. You can start to think, man, what is happening here? Oh, this, this makes me cringe. I don't like this. What is God doing? I, I don't wanna read about this. And here it is in verse number uh, five. I heard the angel of the waters say, and here's what he said, thou art righteous, O Lord which art and was and shall be because thou hast judged thus. Meaning, God, your judgment and what you're doing is right. God, you're not unhinged. God, you're not, you're not too angry. God, this is not unjustified. You're not unreasonable. You haven't gone mad. God, this is just and right. You are fair. You are without error. This is something that is deserved. The punishment does fit the crime. And most Christians read the book of Revelation and get to the seals and they get to the trumpets and they get to the bowls of wrath. And most Christians read it and they think to themselves, I don't know if the punishment fits the crime. This feels too austere. This feels too severe. This feels too rough. 
This feels like a, like a bloodthirsty God. What, what is going on here? But I wanna remind you what the book says over and over again in no uncertain terms. God, you are just. This is right. This is fair. Now, how do you wrap your head around that? It's my job to help you. And not just shove it down your throat and say it's fair. Like it or lump at the end. But to help you see. In any situation where there's wrong, where there's sins that are committed, atrocities that are committed, there are those that offend and those that are offended, right? And if you are offended, you generally want justice. They did wrong, they sinned against me, so let's make sure they get a punishment. If you are the offender, you normally want mercy, right? You want grace. And thank God that right now in this church age, there is mercy and mercy. There are, there's an ocean of grace that God forgives us, that God is there for us, wipes away our sin. We thank God for that. But this, this is a moment where creation is rebelling and rebelling and rebelling and rebelling. And finally, it's not mercy and grace. Now it's judgment. And God is offended. God is wronged. And he's doling out the punishments. And here we are, we're not in this instance, the offended or the offender. Now we're just kind of third parties, right? We're just reading this as a third party trying to say, is, is this fair? Is this right? And I would remind you that there is a place for third parties in a justice system. Even in our justice system, we have third parties. We call them jurors, right? How many of you have ever been summoned for jury duty? Raise of hands. It's a great letter to get in the mail, isn't it? It's just it's like, ah, I should have changed my address, you know? How many of you have ever served jury duty? Okay, a few of you have served jury duty. There's a place for a third party to weigh evidence and to determine if someone is guilty or not in select instances in our system. But even in our system, you know what we don't let jurors do? Generally speaking, there's a very rare instance, but generally speaking, they don't sentence. They can declare guilt or not, but they do not get to sentence the one and determine the actual punishment that will fit that crime. Now it's in the judge's hand. It's the judicial system's job to determine that. And what this is saying is that God is a just judge and it's not your job to judge. And if you think that uh, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, I'm here to remind you, you don't know enough. You're really not even a juror in this instance, but even if you were a juror, that's not your job. It's above your pay grade. And the angel declares, what is happening is fair. What is happening is right. And here's the reason that it's right. Verse number six, they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink for they're worthy. Blood for blood. That's what he says. And I'll remind you what you may lose track of because we've seen this revelation, but it's a big book and we've been through a lot, right? What did chapter number six tell us? that God's people, those that declared the word of the testimony of Jesus were martyred and were put down and were slaughtered systematically. And they were then in heaven as martyrs and they were crying out, chapter six told us. They were crying out to God and they were saying, revenge our blood. Do something about this. Don't let them get away with this. And what did God tell them? Be patient. I will, be patient. It's coming, right? What did chapter number 13 tell us? 
that it wasn't now just the systematic uh, extinguishing of those that would declare the testimony of Jesus, but the attention of, of the devil and of the Antichrist gets turned towards the Jewish nation. And now there's a systematic extinguishing that's happening there. And there you can't lose sight of what that is in this moment and that God now begins to administer justice. And I would, I would draw on maybe something like a Holocaust And I would ask you, okay, we're in 2023. It's been quite a few years since the Holocaust has happened. And in 2023, in our day and age, where no one can seem to agree on anything ever, there's pretty universal consent that the Holocaust was unmixed evil, that that was beyond messed up to try to systematically exterminate a group of people, that that's not okay. And I would ask you, is there, a, is there a crime too severe, a punishment too severe for Hitler? I'd struggle to think of one. I would. Is there a punishment too severe for those who run the concentration camps and, and just murder not just hundreds, not just thousands, millions of people? Is there a punishment too severe for that? You'd probably struggle to think of one. What about those who just went with the flow and called in you know, their, their Jewish neighbors and, and reported them and just kind of took their hands off and said, we're just gonna go along with whatever's happening here and, and, and not, not oppose, let's go along to get along and just let Nazi Germany do their thing. Is there a punishment too severe for that? I think we can get that, right? And, and re, I will remind you that Revelation tells us that this has been happening, that those that love Jesus, that those that are Jewish, that those that, that, that are God's people are being systematically exterminated and God is now stepping in and saying, blood for blood, you're getting your just desserts. I'm not crazy here. I, I, yes, it is my wrath that is unmingled wine. It is not diluted in the least but you deserve it. Then it goes on to say, in case it wasn't clear enough, verse number seven. I heard another out of the altar say, so another voice, whose voice? I don't know. And really notice anybody else. Like we don't know for sure, but a voice. Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And God, they do deserve this. God, they did have it coming. When I read that over the last couple of weeks, my mind immediately bounced to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a prophet, a guy. He has his own book of the Bible in the Old Testament. It's in like the dead zone of the Bible that people generally don't read and they don't understand and they kind of like steer clear of it and just skip over to the gospels and, and don't mess with it. But it's, it's the Bible and it's great. It's there for our learning and our admonition. And Habakkuk is this guy that comes to God as like, God, Look at what's happening. Shouldn't you judge them? Shouldn't punishment come? And God's like, Habakkuk, glad you mentioned it, bro. Like I was just about to do that. It's coming soon. And as a matter of fact, here's how I'm going to punish them. And then Habakkuk gets in a tizzy. He's like, whoa. Yeah, I want you to judge evil and sin, but you can't judge it that way. That's not what I'm talking about. That doesn't, that doesn't compute with my head. I don't think that that works. You can't judge it that way, God. And he begins to, to have it out with God. And if you read Habakkuk chapter number two, it's basically a whole chapter of God giving Habakkuk the business. And just asking him like, who do you think you are? Like, what do you know? 
to judge me and to tell me that I'm not righteous or I'm not just in the way that I'm punishing people. And you get to the end of that whole episode and it ends with this cherry on top, this verse in Habakkuk 2 verse 20. God says about himself, the Lord is holy in his temple, so let all the earth keep silence before him. It's this moment where God says, understand who I am and know your role and shut your mouth. If you thought the rock thought of that on his own, you'd be wrong. He got it from Habakkuk. It was right there the whole time. God steps up and he tells him like, look, be quiet. I know what I'm doing and I am not unjust here. And this is one of those moments in Revelation where we're reminded again, God knows what he's doing. Take him off trial. Like take him off trial and understand that he's doing the right thing. Even in wrath. It goes on to tell you what the next uh, bowl is. Verse number eight, the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire and men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God, which has power over these plagues and they repented not to give him glory. Some have suggested that this would be solar flares. Some have suggested that the ozone layer, which is kind of like Earth's sunscreen, uh, is, is somehow diluted or compromised and now more UV rays get in. I don't know. All I know is the heat is turned up for sure. And it tells us what the reaction is. The reaction is contempt for God, persistent rebellion, brazen sin, they blaspheme God, which is highly ironic. Like if you want a raise from your boss, my suggestion would be don't go into their office and cuss them out and make fun of their wife. Like that's probably not gonna do you any good, right? If you are ever like sentenced by a judge and you're at that moment where you're there and they declare that you're guilty and they're gonna sentence you, my suggestion would not be to start yelling and screaming and raising your fist at the judge. Probably won't go well for you, right? But this is that moment where the one who is controlling the plagues, the one who is administering, the judge who's on the throne sentencing, that they're still blaspheming and raising the fist and being angry and going against God. And it tells us the next one here in, in verse number 10 is that there's these sinners that are just confounded. It says, the fifth angel poured out his vial on the seat of the beast probably speaking of specifically where the Antichrist has set up his capital, wherever that may be. I don't know, nor does anybody else. And his kingdom was full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain. And once again, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they repented not of their deeds. So here it is, darkness. You say, oh, that, that sounds pretty mediocre compared to the rest of it. Well, on top of the rest of it, it just exacerbates everything. Try finding the right bottle of pain medication when there's complete darkness. It's hard. Try getting around, getting food, getting water, doing, doing whatever when it's dark. And we, we so very rarely experience true darkness that it, it, it's disarming when it happens to us. We know what it's like for the sun to go down and for it to be night, for it to be dark, or to stumble around your room in the dark and stub your toe on the end of the bed, but it's not actually dark, dark in there, Right? Because you have the moonlight reflecting, you have even something as simple as the little numbers on your microwave in the kitchen providing some light. Like you're, you're very rarely, unless you love to go splunking in caves or something, like you're very rarely in the dark. 
My wife and I had this experience years ago. It's the last time that I was in the dark, truly, was about a decade ago. Uh, we celebrated our anniversary. I believe it was our second, maybe our third anniversary. I can't recall exactly. But we were living in Northern California at the time. And so I decided to take Maggie to this restaurant called The Opaque in San Francisco. And it's this restaurant where you enter the world of a blind person for your meal. You go down these stairs and you order your meal there while you can see the menu. And then you walk through this series of curtains over and over and over. And then you are in the restaurant and it is pitch black. Like there is no light period, no matter what you do. Your eyes do not adjust. You're just in the dark. And all of, it's actually a really neat experience, I would say, just to be, try to figure out and find things and cut things and just, just to have that experience. All of the wait staff are blind or legally blind that, that serve you in this environment. But I can remember vividly the first 10 or 15 minutes, it being so uh, alarming to being complete, it was so uncomfortable. It was, it was unnerving to be there. It actually made both my wife and I a little bit claustrophobic because you had no sense of how high is the ceiling? How far is that wall? And because you had no sense of that, you just kind of almost assumed that everything was on top of you. And, and we, were, we weren't quite panic attack mode, but those first few minutes were like, get our heart rate down to get calm and try to enjoy dinner. It was hard. And this is on top of the Thors and on top of the seas and the streams, on top of all that is happening here, now comes darkness, it says. Verse number 12, you see the sixth angel and the sixth bowl of wrath, which we'll call controlling spirits. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates and the water thereof was dried up. Now, how? Is that just like it evaporated and miracle? Maybe. Maybe it's something that's more modern and practical than that. The Euphrates River has actually been in the news recently, uh, especially last year and in 2021. There was a lot happening in the Middle East, specifically this feud with Turkey and Syria. The Euphrates would start in Turkey and they have set up a series of dams where they can divert and control the amount of water that flows downstream. And then while they were feuding with Syria, they decided to start to choke the river. They have an agreement that's decades old that they will at least allow, uh, what was it, 500 cubic meters a second. That's what the agreement says. And they choked it down to 200 meters a second. And this is what the, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said this, quote, they warned of an imminent environmental disaster that threatens food security and humanitarian catastrophe that would deprive nearly 2.5 million people of the Euphrates River water. The Office of Energy and Communications in Syria went on to say, the Turkish occupation state is using water as a weapon. They are drying up the river and they're trying to hurt us. Now, maybe that's what will happen. Maybe it's something else, I don't know. But we know that this is dried up and it tells you why. There's this so that, and anytime you see a so that, that tips your hat and says, okay, here's the reason. Why was the Euphrates River dried? So that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now you're starting to get into some stuff that is clear and not clear all at the same time. There's, there's enough clarity for us to understand, but I don't know all the specifics. This is drying up so that the pathway will be made easier for kings of the east. 
What do you mean the east? East of the Euphrates. Now, who's east of the Euphrates? Well, a lot of nations are east of the Euphrates. People generally will know Iran, India, China. Maybe it's Pakistan. Maybe it's all of them. I don't know for sure. But there's this coalition of nations that are, and we'll see in a minute, they're going to want to bring a large army west of the Euphrates. Now, there's not a ton that's west of the Euphrates. There is some, but you're boxed in by some bodies of water. I mean, Turkey's there. Part of Iraq is there. People oftentimes look and say, Israel's there. Maybe that's significant. But these armies are going to want to go west across this river that is a natural border. And here's what the text says. Verse 13, this may seem disjointed, but stick with it, it's not. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Like, where, where do we go? Uh, we're in, what happened? Well, these three unclean spirits like frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they're spirits of devils working miracles. Now let's just ta- stop for a minute, okay? Very descriptive language. It's meant to be imaginative and draw you in. And what it's saying is there are going to be three demonic spirits specifically. It says they're out of the mouth of uh, the dragon who's already been clearly identified as Satan, the beast, the, the antichrist, the false prophet, meaning they're going to speak on behalf of them. But here they're going to come. My assumption, and this is just an assumption, is that the frog imagery, is it's just a ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. They just kind of pound the same message over and over and over. But they are sent forth and they're sent forth for this particular reason. They go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. So they're going to get a a coalition of kingdoms to join together to have the armies come to fight for this great battle that we'll see more of in a minute that they're coming to try to convince people to come together and to rally and to fight. Is what's happening. Hence, the kings of the east and trying to get across the rivers, Euphrates. This is a total unification of these armies and these nations to put them on the same wavelength and on the same page in order to wage war. And I will give a quick biblical clarification. I love unity. The idea of total unification is not something that scares me. I'm for unity, but for the right reasons, right? Unity is a powerful thing. When you can get parties together, when you can get a husband and wife together, like two barrels and a double barrel shotgun that are, that are both firing in the same direction, man, that's powerful. When you can get a family together, that's powerful. When you can get a church together and unified and pulling in the same direction and eliminate the sideways energy, that's powerful but that can be used for good purposes or for wrong purposes. Unifying people under a banner is only good as long as the motive is correct and it's God honoring. So Tower of Babel, unification of people for a purpose that was not God honoring. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, then just let the rest of us who had the Sunday school story just reminisce for a moment. Wrong purposes, so God disrupts that, right? Early church, book of Acts, 
church is unified, they're all in one accord over and over and over again for the right purposes. And God honors that and blesses that and the church is dynamic. Here, unity, but for the wrong purposes, and you'll see in a moment that God is going to disrupt this. It, it already told you really that this is gonna be the great, the, the great day of, of God Almighty, that this is going, God's gonna come and he's gonna thwart this. Generally, if the devil and his agents are wanting to rally people to do something, that's not going to be in line with God's purposes. And he's going to come against this strongly. And here's what it says, verse number 16, there'll be this global devastation. I skipped 15 for a reason. I'll be back in a moment. He gathered them together into one place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Now that, that word rings a bell, right? Armageddon? whether it was the band who had Armageddon in their name or the movie or just in general, right? That's, that's a trite kind of word nowadays. We use it to describe really any sort of skirmish or battle, whether it's, it's real, tangible, or whether it's just relational, that is of significance to us. But it comes from this passage, from a, a real battle, a real place. Armageddon is, is translated that way, but it's Har-Megiddo. Har meaning Mount of Megiddo. It's a place. You can go to Israel. And if you ever go to Israel with us as, as a church, we'll take you there. It's in Northern Israel. And we can go up on the Mount of Megiddo and look down in the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of Jezreel, same thing, they're synonyms. And you can see what Napoleon called the most idyllic battlefield that you could ever create. Massive. And you can picture with your mind's eye how millions upon millions upon millions could be in this, in this valley and there could be this great war. But this tells you there's coming this day where the armies are coalesced, joined together, and all in one lump sum, there's going to be a battle. And on paper, it'll look unfair, like one versus millions and millions, but the one is God. So it'll work out all right. Because we fight with guns and ammo and tanks and missiles and torpedoes. But God is God, right? God Almighty, the text says. God has the power to use the forces of nature, which we're gonna see in just a minute, to cause earthquakes and drop hail, fire. God has the power to sow seeds of discord amongst nations that were once together in the same way that evil agents can put people together. God has the power to turn them against each other so that they destroy each other. Or if God just wants to be God and revoke people's license to breathe, he can, because he's God. And this is all coming together, this, this judgment, this wrath that we poured out. But we skipped over verse 15, which is just this quick note to believers where it says, just in the middle of this, it's almost like, hey, don't forget. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, I don't know about you, but it took me a minute to wrestle with that one. I've, I read it and I read it and I read it again. I'm like, what does this have to do with anything? Keeping my garment so I'm not naked, that's shameful. Like, I don't know what's streaking, how it got in here. Like, this it surprised me. But here it is. And here's Mark's paraphrase of this. When the moment of, of, of truth arrives, you don't want to be spiritually destitute. This is kind of a mega theme that you see all through the Bible that we as, as God's people 
should watch, should be waiting for Jesus, should be on our tippy toes, should be anticipating, should be looking for him and longing for him. And, and whether this is, there's debate as to, is this to all Christians of all time? Or is this written to the Christians that are on earth in this particular time? I'll ignore that, but I'll get the main truth. That we are to be watching and waiting so that we're not caught off guard because when Jesus comes, like it, it's not going to be something that's, that necessarily everyone's anticipating. Oh, here's the exact time. Like you better be waiting for this. And it even draws on what the, what the culture and customs were of the day. Jesus uses this profoundly in John 14 where he takes a marriage, right? And he says, here's, here's how it's gonna work. I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna prepare a place. Then I'll come again and I'll get you. I'll receive you into myself, right? Which was the custom. And if I wanted to marry, we'll call her Mary. I want to marry Mary, okay? I should put Maggie in there. That's my wife's name. Let's forget Mary. Sorry, Marys. We're going to pick Maggie. I want to marry Maggie. On that day and age, I don't get down on one knee and say, will you marry me, right? I don't DM her and ask her to, to go on a date with me. That's not how it works. I go to her uh, dad, I said, I'd like to marry Maggie. And he says, how many chickens you got? How many cows do you got? Like, let's figure out a dowry. That's how it goes. And we work it out, right? And then I leave. I have my bride. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come again, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna prepare a place. I'm gonna get the house ready, get everything set up, get everything in order, and then I'll come again and receive you. And Maggie would have one job. Be ready when I get here, okay? I don't wanna get here and you dilly-dally and tell me you need eight years for your makeup or you got a hair appointment next week, okay? Be ready when I get here. Have your bags packed. That's Maggie's job. That's how it worked. And that is drawn into this to say, be ready. Have your bags packed. When the moment of truth comes, you do not want to be caught off guard. You do not want to be spiritually destitute. And really for you, I would say this pushes you into like a decision of like, hey, don't delay. Don't, don't think you have all day, all year, all life. You know, I'm, I'll, get, I'll get back with Jesus eventually. I know I'm far from him right now. You know, I know him and he knows me and he convicts me and I'll get around to it next year. Don't. You know what, I've been weighing this out. Should I put my faith in Jesus or not? You know, I got a long time. You know, we'll just, we'll punt it back a little bit. We'll hit the snooze button on that one. Don't. When the moment of truth comes, you don't know, even for you, you don't know what's gonna happen today. I hope all of you drive home safely, but you don't know if you're gonna turn on 908 and be blindsided. You don't know. When that moment of truth comes, you don't wanna be spiritually destitute. It's him giving this admonition to those that know him and saying, hey, be ready, be on guard. And then he goes straight into the seventh of the bowls of wrath. Verse 17, convulsive storms. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it's done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. And we have lots of earthquakes. I know we don't deal with a lot of that here where we're at, right? I was messaging this week with uh, Seth and Nicole Stokes. We mentioned them last week, uh, but they are in a, an area that has lots of earthquakes. They had some this week and was asking, hey, how are you doing? Did it affect you? What was happening? What were the tremors like? But here's one that's the largest the earth has ever seen. 
So mighty an earthquake and so great, here's how great it is. The great city is divided into three parts. The cities of nations fell. Great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away. Mountains were not found. Like that's an earthquake. Islands gone, mountains crumbling, cities being split into pieces. Like this earthquake comes in judgment. And then verse 21, there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. How great? Every stone about the weight of a talent. To which you say, how much does a talent weigh, right? The talent is the weight of a baby hippo. That's how much a talent is, okay? It's about a hundred pounds. How many of you want a baby hippo to fall on your head? <laughs> Not me. That sounds like that could do some damage, right? That's coming through your roof. Men, here's what they did. They blasphemed God because of the plague of hell. For the plague thereof was exceedingly great. That's the end of the chapter. None of that tickles your ears, I would imagine. But maybe it pricks your conscience. Maybe it helps you. I'm saying prick my conscience How? Well, if you're not on team Jesus, get on team Jesus. You don't want to play with that. You can fall into his loving arms today. But if you say no and no and no and no to his loving arms, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's how that works. Maybe it pricks your conscience to be more ready. And you're like, man, if I face Jesus today, hmm, I think I'd be like, I wasted last week. I wasted last month. Well, don't waste this week. Don't waste today. Don't waste this year. Don't waste this summer. We're almost to summer and every summer I'll normally give a couple plugs of like, hey, go out during the summer. Don't kick it in neutral spiritually during the summer. Go, relax, have vacation, camp, have your fun, but don't let it be spiritually detrimental where you completely disrupt all your rhythms and you camp every single weekend and, and you come fall and you're like, oh, I just feel very far from God. Well, that's, that's a loss. Don't do that. Allow this to grab you and to say, what is my paradigm when it comes to the justice of God? Do I feel that he's fair? Okay, for a minute, forget them, forget the future. How about you? Do you feel he's fair in your life? Because some of you, if I know you, you're shaking your fist at him right now. Lord, what, what did you do? Why did you allow that? I don't like that. Listen, you don't have to like it, but don't point your finger at him and say that he's unjust and that he's not righteous, because he is. Allow it to convict you. Allow it even to encourage you to some extent. The text never says this, but the Bible does say elsewhere that all the wrath, the bowls of wrath, the undiluted wrath, all this wrath, wrath, wrath is not for you if you know Jesus as your savior. That's encouragement, right? I have to know what I'm delivered from so I know what to be grateful for. So in some ways, there's an implication that this should produce gratitude and encouragement in your life that you will not experience this as a believer, that his wrath is not for you, right? That he takes you, that he protects you, that you're, that you're in the palm of his hand. Allow him to do a work. I don't, I, every single sermon, I think I tell you this, I don't want to come out of this chapter or out of this book and just be, I think I know some information about the future so that I can play Bible trivia better. Who cares about Bible trivia? 
Some of you are like, I'm a third grade teacher. We play it all the time. It's really important. Okay, you care. I'm concerned about your heart. I'm concerned about your life. I'm concerned about formation. And you have a proper perspective of God. And you wanted to serve him wholly and full heartedly. And today, that's what I want. And I want to encourage you. I'll, I'll end with this. I've told you this before. But years and years ago, two painters were commissioned to paint a picture of peace and rest. That was a job. Whatever you want, paint it. One painter painted a picture of a pond. It was real calm, very tranquil, no ripples, little pasture behind it. I mean, it was just like the most docile, calm thing you could ever picture it in your life. You just wanted to put a hammock next to it and take a nap, you know? The other painter decided to paint this waterfall that was massive, thundering, booming. But behind this waterfall was this little nest and this little bird that was there tucked away as safe as could be. And those that looked at the painting said, I think the second one is a better picture of peace and rest. And I think that that's really the picture you get for believers when you go through Revelation of there is this booming, cascading, thundering wrath, these bowls being poured out. And that's what can grab your attention because it's so in your face and it's so loud and it's meant to be. But understand that you are nestled behind that and that you are safe and that that is not meant to fall on you. And that should make you eternally grateful. It should make you praise God. It should make you pillow your head at night with some peace and some calm and to say, thank you, Jesus. That you will be the just judge, but that judgment doesn't fall on my head. That should be produced in us over and over and over again. 